0: as we prepare for this morning's lesson from the Old Testament book of Ruth with a reading from Paul's New Testament letter to the Galatians. When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those that are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons and because you are sons God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying Abba Father so you are no longer a slave but a son and if a son then God has made you also an heir please join me in in prayer. Creator God, we come before you this morning full of expectation that you again wish to reveal something new to us about your great plan, about your great love for us, indeed, about your very nature. While as your creatures, we're far from understanding the glory of a God who stands outside of time and space, yet you have still lovingly adopted us into the very intimacy of your family. You call us sons and daughters, and you reach out in so many ways to draw us closer and to teach us about yourself. So we humbly ask you to use Pastor Daniel this morning to reveal yet more of your glory. Prepare our hearts for this message and fill him with your Holy Spirit that he too may be encouraged and strengthened by the power of your word. We lift these praises and requests to you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You can be seated. Okay. Sit down.
1: Yeah, can be you all didn't know. this is my father.
0: And this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him.
1: That's a borderline blast us there. But uh, we like each other, which is great. My name is Daniel. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm doing double duty today. privilege to get to preach the Word. Uh, We're in the book of Ruth, and as Pastor Patrick said last week, it's so nice to be out of the book of Judges. Ruth is this little bright spot in the middle of uh, a pretty dark collection of works uh, in the Old Testament, and so um, it's exciting to get to preach from it, but in the past, maybe you're something like me where when you get to Ruth in your yearly reading plan, you kind of power through it in one day, and then you think, why is this story in here? <laughs> you know, Pastor Jeff said a few weeks ago, Ruth helps us transition the narrative out of the period of Judges and into the period of the Kings. It's a historical narrative, so there's some cultural oddities in there that are very interesting to look at. Uh, but really, it. Doesn't it just kind of seem like a love story between two randos, like two people we don't have any idea who they are, and all of a sudden we care about what they're doing? But Jeff did a great job in chapters one and two of both pointing out some noble character principles that we can apply to ourselves, but also highlighting the sovereignty of God in chapters one and two. And last week, Patrick started to develop the connection for us between Boaz the Redeemer and Christ the Redeemer, with Boaz pointing forward to to Christ as the perfect Redeemer. And we'll see that fleshed out even more here in this chapter. In fact, the main point of our text today and the main purpose for the book overall are one and the same. For the Christian... The main point of Ruth and chapter four specifically is that the story of Boaz redeeming Ruth and Naomi is a microcosm. It's a uh, it's a little picture of God's ultimate redemption of His people. Now, it's certainly more of a refined uh, art film. Uh, It's filled with kind of subtle reflections and foreshadowing of this redemption more than it is a blatant systematic theology about ultimate redemption. But as the story concludes, we're going to see better the nature of God's redemption, his redemptive work, the nature of our redemption, our participation in the work of redemption. And we're going to see that in three ways in this story. God's work of redemption is joined through faithful trust, The access point to God's work of redemption is faithful trust. God's work of redemption is engaged by assuming responsibility. It's participated in by assuming responsibility. And God's work of redemption is accomplished in and through humanity. That is a big claim, that God's work of redemption is accomplished in and through humanity. But before we jump into our text, let's recap the book really quick as we come to the end. Naomi left Bethlehem with her husband Elimelech, or Eli Melech, or however you pronounce it, Elimelech, and two sons due to a famine in the land of Bethlehem. And they go into Moab, right? Now, Moab is a territory that is notoriously always in conflict with Israel. It's, it's uh, It's a desperate move to go there. But while they're there, her boys marry two Moabite women, and one of them being Ruth. And then in a series of tragedies, both her husband and her boys die. So Naomi returns from Moab to Bethlehem, and Ruth demonstrates this intense faithfulness, this faithful love by staying with her mother-in-law, not remaining with her own people. Now, when the women of Bethlehem call out to Naomi as she's coming back to Bethlehem, her response is that her name has been changed from Naomi to Mara to bitterness, because the Lord has afflicted her with deep sorrow at the loss of her menfolk. And now these two destitute widows are living in Bethlehem, and they need food. So Naomi sends Ruth to glean the fields of a prominent man of noble characters, how the scripture describes him, from Elimelech's family, and his name is Boaz. And while harvesting grain, the God fearing Boaz passes by and takes particular notice of Ruth. And after learning her story, but learning about her noble character, he then instructs Ruth to stick around and, and glean only from his fields, even to kind of make herself at home with, with the other workers and servants, and to rest easy as he has given orders for no one to exploit or harm her. Now, this protection was a huge deal for a destitute widow. So eventually he prays that the Lord would reward her for her care of her mother-in-law, and at the end of the day, he he loads her down with food to take back to, to Naomi, to sell in the marketplace, to use to provide for herself, signaling not only his desire to protect her, but his desire to provide for her. And it's quite the meat cute in this blossoming romance, right? So Ruth keeps working in Boaz's field day by day until one day Naomi comes up with a little bit of a scandalous scheme to get her daughter in law and Boaz together. Now, to be clear, no one on staff recommends this as a method of courtship. <laughs> But Ruth goes to Boaz while he's sleeping and uncovers him to some degree. And there is, it is, it is not, it's, it's scandalous, right? But Bo, and then, not only that, uh, she proceeds to propose to him. And Boaz reveals his good character by protecting Ruth. He protects her physically by not, and reputation-wise, by not taking advantage of her forwardness. And then he kind of accepts her marriage proposal. However, and then, and then for some reason he gives her more food and sends her on her way. <laughs> but during the course of the evening, Boaz reveals that though he is a kinsman to Naomi, he is not the closest kinsman. And thus, he does not have the right to marry Ruth and redeem Naomi's property. So that's where we left off last week and we've started to see that Boaz is this type of Christ and Ruth is a, is a type of, of the church of those whom Christ redeems and it's not a one-to-one allegory. We don't say Boaz is Christ. It's, he is a type. He is like, in, he's in the, the likeness of that. He's a reflection of that. And we see the, the helpless and the destitute in need of redemption, does that sound familiar? And the wealthy and virtuous man willing to provide it? So there's there's certainly something typological here. And we wanna learn of the nature of God's redemption through Boaz's redemption of Ruth. So with the greater redemption in mind, let's move on to our first point. If you're following along in your bulletin, which I called a, did I call it a pamphlet this morning in first service? I was like, in your pamphlet? Um, if you're following along in the, the sermon notes in the bulletin, the first point is that God's work of redemption is joined through faithful trust. It's access, the, the on-ramp is through faithful trust. Let's read in chapter four, verses one through five. It says, "Boaz." went down to the, gate, uh, went to the gate of the town and sat down there. And soon the family redeemer Boaz had spoken about came by. Boaz said, come over here and sit down. So he went over and he sat down. And then Boaz took 10 men of the town's elders and said, you sit here also. And they sat down. And then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has returned from the territory of Moab, is selling a portion of the fields that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should inform you, buy it back in the presence of those seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you want to redeem it, do it. But if you do not want to redeem it, tell me so that I will know because there isn't any other than you to redeem it and I am the next after you. I want to redeem it, he answered. Then Boaz said, okay, On the day that you buy the field from Naomi, you will acquire Ruth the Moabites, the wife of the deceased man, to perpetuate the man's name on his property. So we've seen that there's this desire in Boaz to redeem Ruth and Naomi by marrying Ruth. And clearly, there's a desire on the part of Ruth to be redeemed by Boaz. And at the end of chapter three, even Naomi is is encouraging Ruth by saying, hey, I think Boaz is actually going to do this for us. But there's this problem that he is not technically the first in line to be able to do it. So introduced into our love story here is some high drama. There are religious laws and cultural customs standing in the way of their romance together. So what does Boaz do? Well, if this was a modern film, he would just go ahead and marry Ruth either secretly or publicly, regardless of law or custom, because their love was so true. And love is love. And, and bad Jane Austen movies tell us that love is all that matters. And he would have bought Naomi's land and fought the battle in court and dramatically appealed to the emotions of the judge and the jury that that he must have the land because it's a pathway to Ruth. And Ruth has bewitched him body and soul and he loves, loves, loves her and it compels him to violate the law of God. And all of us being westerners would have swooned with our popcorn in the seats of the theater over the passionate romance of it all but what happens here well just like he restrained himself when Ruth uncovered him on the threshing floor Boaz restrains his passionate emotions and he takes the route of faithful trust Trust in God and in his providence that though he loves Ruth, he is willing to set her upon the altar and see someone else marry her. Trust that all the promises that God made in Deuteronomy for those who faithfully observed the law of the covenant, that those promises would actually come to pass. And he literally takes the very thing that he wants, and he offers it to the only person who could, by right, take it from him. Boaz goes down to the city gate to find this guy. Now, the city gate served as kind of a a community center and a a courthouse and a a watering uh, or a water cooler. It's where uh, there was some bench seating usually around the entrance and Uh, It would allow for some of the older, wiser, the elder men of the community to sit and hear cases that needed judgment. Business was conducted there. Contracts were entered into and witnessed there uh, because it was the bridging point between the marketplace in the city and the produce and the animals of the surrounding fields. It's where you'd go to pass along messages and find out if there were any visitors within the city or what news had come from far off as traders had come through. So Boaz heads down there first thing in the morning, and sure enough, this guy comes through as the day progresses. Now, I say this guy because he's never named in the story. The Hebrew would be the equivalent of Mr. So-and-so. Mr. So-and-so came through. So he's not a man of any apparent standing. And Boaz then gathers him and then gathers witnesses, Witnesses as custom and wisdom required. And then he plainly presents the reality of the situation to him. And our hearts, caught up in the romance of it all, catch in our throat a little bit when initially it sounds like this guy is going to take the offer. Now, what Boaz is doing isn't just pure legalism. Like, oh, I'm just going to fall on my sword and, you know, hand the right of, of, uh, re- of redemption over to this guy. Boaz is wise, He has a game plan here. I'm sure Boaz knew, as we will see, the mediocre character of this nameless relative. And I'm sure he probably knew that this guy wasn't going to be thrilled at the idea of marrying a Moabitess. So he throws that in there with Ruth's description. So he acted shrewdly when he presented the information. And additionally, he made sure there were witnesses so that this guy would have to do right by Ruth and Naomi if he did accept the opportunity to redeem them. So he used his wisdom, his intelligence, and his relational capital with those at the city gate to put himself in the best position he could, and then he laid his hopes on the altar and trusted the Lord. Trusted that the Lord had better plans for Ruth and Naomi than he did trusted that the Lord cared for the redemption of Ruth and Naomi, and trusted that by his faithful actions, by him driving the process forward, redemption would occur, be it through him or through Mr. So-and-so. And as we seek to join God's redemptive work, this tells us something important about faithful trust. Faithful trust does not mean laziness. Faithful trust does not mean apathy. or or fatalistic determinism. Faithful trust is exercised in obedient actions. Faithful trust is exercised in obedient actions, and faithful trust is further demonstrated by letting God be responsible for the outcome of those faithful actions. This thing keeps falling off. So letting God be responsible for the outcome of those obedient actions and humbly accepting that outcome whether you get the desired results or not. At the church that Kristen and I met at, the the pastor had a young daughter who's, ooh, age, um, who got cancer. She had a huge tumor growing off of her liver. And there was a a prayer movement that was organized around this little girl. It was called hashtag Pray for Daisy. And I'm not exaggerating when I say that tens of thousands of people across the world were regularly and steadfastly and passionately praying for the healing of this little girl. And I have never prayed so hard and so confidently. I had such assurance and belief that God was gonna heal this little girl. And then she died. She died and my prayer life was shipwrecked. Because I couldn't believe that I had prayed so hard. I couldn't believe that God had heard the prayers of tens of thousands of faithful believers on behalf of this little girl. Heard the prayers of her desperate parents in hospital rooms. And had not chosen to heal this little girl. And I went through this crisis of, of faith in my prayer life. I struggled to pray because I thought, you know what? God is just going to do whatever God's going to do. And there is no point in me being faithful and obedient to pray, to petition the Lord the way that he, he tells us to because of this. I didn't allow the outcome of my prayers to be the responsibility of God. It was my responsibility and when it didn't happen, I was devastated by it. I didn't get the desired result and I was devastated by it. But that's not the example that we see in scripture. And in fact, the best example of how God's work of redemption is joined by faithful trust is the Lord Jesus himself. He demonstrated faithful trust throughout his life, certainly, but particularly in the garden, sweating, drops of blood, pleading with the Father for there to be any other way than these next steps. And then what does he do? He obeys. Don't miss this. Jesus did not get the results his prayers were petitioning for, but he obeyed and our redemption was accomplished. So as we seek to join God in his redemption of all things, we come to moments like Boaz. And it's whether we're trying to help redeem our spouses or our children or our neighbors or vocations or property or, or whatever it is, we need to bring all of our wisdom, all of our experience, all of our resources to the moment of decision and act shrewdly and diligently and then entrust the outcome to the care of God. Remember what Proverbs sixteen nine says, a person's heart plans his ways. But the Lord determines his steps. And there will only be resentment and frustration if we turn that proverb into a person's heart plans his ways, and the Lord owes it to him to bring it to fruition. Our call is to obedience and a humble trust in God's providence, whatever the outcome. So, how can we generally know? what the next obedient action is. Well, like Boaz, we seek to do what God has explicitly commanded in his word, but there's lots of circumstances where there's not an explicit command in the scriptures for what to do. We need to exercise wisdom. We need to discern which, which path to take. And so I, I'm venturing here a little bit, but I think the testimony of scripture backs me up. That in those moments when it's not entirely clear, we take the route that increases our godly responsibilities. We take the route that increases our godly responsibilities because God's work of redemption is engaged, it's participated in uh, with, by assuming responsibility. God's work of redemption is is engaged by assuming responsibility. Let's read verses 6 through 12 together. It says, The Redeemer replied, upon hearing that uh, this deal comes with a wife, the Redeemer replied, Oh, I can't redeem it myself, or I will ruin my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption, because I can't redeem it. And at an earlier point in Israel, a man removed his sandal and gave it to the other party in order to make any matter legally binding concerning the right of redemption or the exchange of property, this was a method of legally binding transaction in Israel, so, the, so the, the elders are all witnessing this. So the redeemer removed his sandal and said to Boaz, buy back the property yourself. And Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are my witnesses today that I am buying from Naomi everything that belonged to Elimelech, Chilion, and and Malon, I've also acquired Ruth the Moabite's, Malin's widow, as my wife to perpetuate the deceased man's name on his property so that his name will not disappear among his relatives or from the gate of his hometown. You are witnesses today. And all the people who are at the city gate, including the elders, said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is entering your house like Rachel and Leah who together built the house of Israel. May you be powerful in Ephrathah and your name well known in Bethlehem. May your house become like the house of Perez, the son Tamar bore to Judah. Because of the offspring the Lord will give you by this young woman. So this guy who had initially accepted the right to the property of Naomi backs out of his acceptance when he finds out that taking responsibility for another person and another family line is involved. He initially jumped on the boat because he thought he was getting an easy increase to his holdings. But he looked upon being responsible for two widows, one of whom he would need to marry and try to have a baby with according to Torah law. He looked at that as taking on liabilities rather than assets. His reasoning for not wanting to marry Ruth is that it would threaten his own inheritance. It would threaten his own wealth and lineage. It has nothing to do with whether he would be able to provide for her. It has nothing to do with, with uh, oh, hey, I'm already married and multiple wives never really works out. Just, oh, this property comes with some extra duties apart from making a profit. No, thanks. Now, it's unsurprising that Boaz, this man of good character and and godliness and faithfulness, who's in love with Ruth, would exercise the right of redemption. He made it clear in chapter three that was his intention from the beginning. But Boaz and others throughout Scripture paint a picture that godly men take responsibility. Godly men take responsibility for themselves They take responsibility for their family. They take responsibility for their community. And it's a a, a proper extension of the dominion mandate issued to Adam in the garden. God says to them, go out and exercise godly rule over all creation. Take responsibility for and over all that exists. But just because the fall has now introduced pain and toil and difficulty and relational strife into those, godly, taking, into those godly responsibilities, it does not negate the fact that the ontological nature of man is to take on responsibility. It's what he's built for, designed for, and it's one of the ways in which he images God in the world. So not only is Boaz honoring the Lord by obeying the covenant laws regarding property and family preservation, he is embracing his God-ordained design by committing himself in marriage to Ruth, by establishing the family line of Naomi and serving his community by his example, his obedience to the covenant, and his provision for the destitute. And look what the people at the city gate respond with. Not only do they honor him and applaud him, they pronounce a blessing upon him that can basically be summarized as, may God grant you great success in being fruitful and multiplying and having God-ordained influence on the earth. And my heart breaks for young people, young men especially, as the culture encourages them to delay increasing their responsibility delay increasing their responsibility for themselves and for other people while they go out and have fun and make money and explore their lusts and follow their passions. It robs them from participating more fully in the redemptive work of God. Think about Mr. So-and-so from our story. He is forever the nameless, faceless, nobody of the book of Ruth when he had the potential to be part of the lineage of Christ. We'll see that a little bit later. Yet he avoided the responsibility of the kinsman redeemer, and he relegated himself to the sidelines of God's redemptive history while Boaz stepped up and knocked it out of the park. But Boaz isn't even the best example of this in the scriptures. Christ's part in the work of redemption is accomplished through an ever-expanding realm of responsibility. So he redeems us by taking greater responsibility for us. 2 Corinthians 5, in verse 18, starts like this. Everything is from God. So God takes the, the initial responsibility who has reconciled himself to us through Christ and then has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling, was redeeming the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Hear this, he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us. He made the only man who could say, sin is not my responsibility. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took total responsibility for our sin. And in this ministry of reconciliation, in this ministry of redemption, not only does he take on the responsibility of initiating reconciliation, he takes on the responsibility for the sin of humanity, becoming sin on our behalf, and then he successfully discharges the obligations of the responsibility by dying under the wrath of God on the cross. And then in rising from the dead, he takes even more responsibility He tells his disciples in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth and all the attendant responsibility that comes with that authority, all authority has been given to me. He then commissions his disciples with the responsibility to go out and train the world to obey that authority. God's work of redemption is engaged with by assuming responsibility. The responsibility of the ministry of reconciliation entrusted to us by Christ. The responsibility of raising a Christian family. The responsibility of running a Christian business. The responsibility of the ministry of this church. Now, this might seem like way too much responsibility to be entrusted to us. But as our third point makes clear, God's work of redemption is accomplished by God in and through humanity. God's work of redemption is accomplished by God in and through humanity. Read with me verses 13 through 17. It says, Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. He slept with her and the Lord granted conception to her and she gave birth to a son. The, woman, the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you without a family redeemer today. May his name become well known in Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Indeed, your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Naomi took the child, placed him on her lap and became a mother to him. The neighbor women said, a son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, for the Jewish reader, this story really takes a compelling turn here at the end. As in any good love story, hopefully ends with a marriage, our story doesn't disappoint. Ruth and Boaz tie the knot and inside the covenant of marriage, they get to have sex. And what is one of the natural outcomes of marital relations? Babies. Right? So along comes a baby. But this baby is special. Special in that it reestablishes the legal lineage of Elimelech and Naomi amongst their people. Special in that the joy of this little one diffuses the bitterness of Naomi's loss. The women of the city are no longer calling her Mara. They're calling her and the Lord blessed for the gift of this child. And who is this child? Well, he happens to be the father of a man named Jesse. And Jesse wound up having a fleet of strapping sons, one of whom happens to be the greatest king that Israel ever knew. He was a valiant warrior who delivered his people. He was a passionate worshiper who penned many of the Psalms. He would be the one to whose descendants the throne of Israel would be guaranteed forever, King David. So we've gone now from a simple drama about a a tragedy that befalls a woman and her daughter-in-laws and their tale of cultural redemption to a story of kings and the liberation of Israel. And for the Christian reader, this part of the story is even more compelling than for the Jewish reader. Because as we know that from the lineage of David comes the Messiah, the Redeemer King, the redeemer king, not only of Israel, but of the whole world, Jesus of of Nazareth. And all because a man and his sons died. All because a Moabite S was faithful and obedient and courageous. All because a kinsman was honorable. All because a man and a woman loved, married, and procreated with each other. Now, without a doubt, the providence and the sovereignty of God has orchestrated all of this. But, brothers and sisters, seldom do we get to see the notes on the page of that supernatural orchestration. We get to see husbands dying and wives grieving. And we get to see people devoting themselves to the care of those grieving family members and we get to see faithful trust and obedient actions, and we get to see marriages and babies being born, and God uses all those ordinary human means to accomplish something extraordinary. A child is born in Bethlehem, and nothing is ever the same again. Not for Ruth, or Boaz, or Naomi, because of that child, Obed. Not for the whole nation of Israel because of the grandchild, David. And not for the whole world because of the son of David who has come in the name of the Lord. God's redemptive work is accomplished in and through humanity. But our enemy hates this. Our enemy hates this. He opposes it at every turn. Have you ever wondered why there are so many genealogies in the Old Testament? Verses 18 through 22 here in Ruth is this little mini genealogy. Well, remember what God says to the serpent in Genesis 3? I will put hostility between your offspring and the offspring of the woman. Between your seed and the seed of the woman. He will strike your head, he will kill you, destroy you, crush you, and you will strike his heel. You will harm him, but not ultimately kill him. What God is doing there is he's promising a deliverer. He's promising a redeemer, one that will strike the head of the serpent. And these genealogies in the Old Testament are tracking the line of that deliverer who is going to crush the head of the serpent. And all throughout the Old Testament, the the serpent who is the devil and those who are of the of the devil were constantly seeking to snuff out or interrupt the line of the deliverer we see it in pharaoh's attempt to kill all the hebrew male children we see it in the surrounding nations that are led by these demon gods trying to enslave or destroy or intermarry with and corrupt the people of israel And we see it in things like the young Hebrew males being castrated when taken off to Babylon, or Herod trying to kill the Messiah by slaughtering the children. Satan opposes the ordinary human means of marriage, family, being fruitful, multiplying, because that is the way in which God works out his rule and his redemption. First through the new Adam, the promised seed, and then through all those who are in the new Adam. Because just as all who were in the old Adam fell in Adam's sin, those in the new Adam are redeemed. Romans 5 says, so then, in in verse 18, so then, as through one trespass, there is condemnation for everyone, so also through one righteous act there is justification, leading to life for everyone, for just As through one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners, us, so also through one man's obedience, Christ's, the many will be made righteous, us, our redemption from the bondage of sin. So never overlook the ordinary human means. Things like mothers and fathers and children and friendships and regular acts of obedience and devotion. Certainly, God acts miraculously in humanity, in history. Certainly, we want to pray as though God will move miraculously. Christ's incarnation and birth was definitely miraculous. But his genealogy is Filled with generations of very ordinary births leading up to his. We must never discount the powerful effect of the ordinary things like a faithful life and character, a commitment to a local body of believers, an invitation to dinner to an unbelieving neighbor, running an honorable and excellent business to the glory of God suffering well through cancer. God has ordained these things to be the primary methods through which he is redeeming the world. You remember that little girl, Daisy, who died? Even though we had prayed so hard for her? My mother's prayer life was transformed by praying for that little girl. Think about that. A little girl's tragic illness and eventual death, God used it to redeem the spiritual life of a woman who she never met. The Lord works powerfully in and through humanity in both the ordinary and the the extraordinary experiences of humanity, but the ordinary things to accomplish his redemption of all things. So what is the application of the book of Ruth? Here are just a few. Faithful trust and rest in our Redeemer. Faithful trust and rest in our Redeemer. Some of you don't believe that God has this compassionate desire to provide and protect you, provide for and protect you. And so you need to find trust and rest in the work that Christ has done, in his providence and his sovereignty over the the ordinary affairs of your life. A good example just coming up, it will be easy in the coming election season to think that God can't possibly be redeeming anything through the dumpster fire that is our political landscape. But brothers and sisters, though the nations do rage, they rage in vain against the Lord and his anointed. God will continue his work of redemption no matter who is elected. And though we want to act shrewdly and we want to use our influence and we want to to exercise our our right to vote, we need not fear. We can trust God no matter the outcome. Another application is to to make a recommitment to faithfulness in the ordinary things of Christian life. I'm the type of guy who's always waiting for like the big moment. My life changed because of an arrest, right? That's when I got sober. It wasn't a, hey, I need to stop drinking. It was a, hey... I had to have this big moment, and I'm always looking for those moments to change things in my relationship with my, with my spouse and my, my child and my family and my job. I'm always thinking that there's going to be this big event that finally catalyzes a, a change, but when in reality, I need faithfulness to the ordinary things of Christian life, personal and family devotion. A recommitment to participation in and, uh, and, and commitment to a local body of believers. Commitment to excellence in study or vocation or stewardship of resources, including your, your physical and your mental health. Recommitment to basic evangelization of your neighbor. We need not wait for a miracle when perhaps God has said simple faithfulness will do here. Another application, grow in your responsibilities. Grow in your responsibilities. Take greater ownership over the life and ministry of this church. Show up to the prayer meeting. Become a a member. Lead a small group. Strive to meet the qualifications of being an elder. Join a team. If you're interested in marriage, First, become marryable. <laughs> Commit yourself to being a, a person of character worth being married to. Get married. Stay married. Have children, adopt children. Maybe start a business or find ways to revitalize the one you work for now. Intentionally disciple someone, anyone. Run for mayor. There's somebody in here who needs to hear this. And in all of those things, whatever whatever the the the, the ordinary Christian commitment, remember that God is at work in and through humanity, and the regular things of humanity. And we're gonna celebrate one of those seemingly regular things this morning as we observe communion and remembrance of the Lord. I wanna invite the ushers to come forward and the worship team to come forward. This table serves, this simple blue cloth covered table serves to re, uh, as a regular reminder of what Christ, the second person of the triune God, has done for us. He has... He was sent into the world according to the promises of the Old Testament. He became a man and lived a perfect life of obedience to the Father. He bore the wrath of God on our behalf and gave to us his righteousness. And he confirmed a new and eternal covenant of gracious redemption, of gracious gracious reconciliation by the shedding of his blood and the affirmation that it is finished. And though the invitation of this meal is to all who believe, we cannot approach this table frivolously. Jesus himself dismissed Judas from the table before instituting it as an ordinance. The apostle Paul warned the Corinthians that some in their community were sick and had died because they partook in an unworthy manner. So it's good. And it's right to self-reflect and see if we have, by our sin and selfishness, divided the body of Christ. If we have, let us turn to confession and repentance and reconciliation with our brothers and sisters before we partake in the table. And as a a symbol of our unity as the family of God, we here hold on to the communion elements until all have received, and then we take them together. And if you need a gluten-free option, please hold up your hand and an usher will bring one around to you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your gracious redemption of us in Christ Jesus. We thank you for the picture of a virtuous and a noble man redeeming those who are without hope and destitute. In the book of Ruth, That reminds us, it reflects and, and points us towards the work that you have done in Christ Jesus on our behalf. I pray for those who are struggling to believe that you are a gracious redeemer. I pray that they would know your, your care for them and that they would entrust themselves by faith to you. I pray for those who don't know you that they would discover the hope of redemption in Christ Jesus and put their faith in you. We love you, Lord, and we praise you in your name. Amen.